The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Thanks for being here with me tonight as we, and technically we are, we're past midnight on the East Coast, so we are on the last day of 2019. Which again, I, as I mentioned last week, it's uh, it's just unbelievable. It's unbelievable that uh, another year has just come and gone. Not just a year, but a decade has come and gone. I remember as a kid thinking, boy, how old will I be in the year 2000? That's so far away. And here we are, 20 years, or if you're Abraham Lincoln, a score into the new millennia. This uh, We're one-fifth of the way through the new millennia. This is... Um, it's incredible. Not the new millennia, I guess, but new century. Um, we're much less into the new millennia if you're doing the math. Anyway, uh, we have a really interesting show tonight because we're going to be talking about ghosts, hauntings, and strange occurrences. Our guest tonight, James Willis, he's an author and a paranormal researcher. We'll be talking about a bunch of different things related to his research throughout Ohio. He's written books called... Ohio's Historic Haunts, Central Ohio Legends and Lore, the big book of Ohio ghost stories. But we're not going to just talk about things that happen solely in Ohio. We're going to get into some of the theory of all this. You know, when we talk about a ghost, what is it? When somebody sees a Bigfoot, what is it? Those are all the million-dollar questions, aren't they? Well, we're going to get James Willis's take on all of that. Tomorrow night, uh, New Year's Eve program and New Year's Day programs will both be uh, best-of shows we will be uh, streaming live, but they will be best of programs, just so you're aware. And then we're going to end out the week with Melinda Vestal. Melinda is a psychic, and she's going to share her predictions for 2020. She's going to also take your calls and offer guidance for the new year for our listeners. So a lot of great stuff. Um, again, if you're listening as a downloadable podcast, make sure you go to our YouTube channel so that you can subscribe. And that way you'll be alerted when we stream live. You'll be alerted when we upload new content, and uh, some of that content is bonus content. Go to YouTube, search for JV Johnson. You'll find it there. Subscribe to the channel. Our numbers have been really jumping up nicely. I appreciate everybody who's taken the time to do this. It's uh, really our hub. It's the hub of our show now. We are focusing on the YouTube channel as our main platform. In addition to the podcast, of course, a lot of people, a lot of people listen to the show as a podcast. We are not uh, neglecting that at all, and we appreciate those listeners every bit as much, for sure. And in fact, if you are a podcast listener, share your link with friends. Let them know how they can also listen to the podcast version of this show, and uh, that it's available. Not everybody realizes that. So the more we share it, the better, right? Um, I've been struggling here since I have got into the studio. I had, I don't know, somebody sent, my cousin actually sent... Um, one of those, I'm trying to remember what company it was. It wasn't Hillshire Farms. It was one of, one of those companies that becomes quite popular on holiday time and people send gift baskets from. And in that uh, gift basket that I got from my cousin, there was a, a bag of um, what you, like caramel popcorn. I don't know which, I, I, that, that's kind of like Cracker Jacks, right? It's got some caramel covered popcorn, some chocolate covered popcorn. And I've got this little piece of popcorn shell skin, whatever the heck it is, stuck in my gum, and I have not been able to get rid of it. And it is driving me absolutely crazy. 
So if you're watching the YouTube stream and you see me doing funny things with my mouth and my tongue, it's because I'm trying to get this popcorn thing out of there. I'm probably going to have to go floss in, in one of the breaks. I think that's what's going to have to happen. Um, <laughs> I, I just don't know. I just I just don't know why these things happen. And I love the pop. I love I like just in general. I like to eat popcorn. But because of that, I don't do it a lot because that's if someone needs to come up with a genetically engineered popcorn that doesn't have those hard shell things that get stuck in your gums. All right. Let's work on that as a group, as a group of uh, beyond reality listeners. That would be awesome. All right. So we're not going to waste any more time here. By the way, we have Arturo filling in for Orion tonight and Arturo will be entertaining all of our YouTube stream watchers, listeners, viewers with trivia during the breaks. I don't know what he's got up his sleeve, but he's got some pretty big sleeves, so there's something up there. And uh, he's going to be doing uh, a lot of trivia. He's going to be having fun during our breaks, and um, I'm, I can't play. That's part of the problem. I'm, I'm a trivia buff. I'm a trivia nut. I'm not allowed to play. But what I do is I watch the chat, and if nobody gets the answers, then I start to give hints. You know, I'll do that. Anyway, um, I think I've shared too much information already. By the way, if, uh, I hope everybody ha- had a good 2019. And if you didn't have a good one, um, hopefully there were lessons learned from what may not have been good. And I hope that we all can look forward to a wonderful 2020 2020. It's crazy stuff. All right. It's Beyond Reality Radio. We'll be back in just a couple of moments. Don't go away. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Beyond Reality Paranormal. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. I'm going to ask that you support this program. The easiest way to do that, by the way, is if you're listening as a podcast, you just open up the description of the episode and you scroll down to the bottom. And at the bottom, there is a link that says support this podcast. If you click on that, you'll be taken to a page that gives you a couple of options for supporting the show. We greatly appreciate it. It helps us bring great programs to you every week, and we look forward to continuing to do that. And if you're enjoying the program on YouTube, there's another way you can support the show. Just go to the description. You'll see a link to a Patreon page. It's Joha, J-O-H-A-W. And if you go to the Patreon page, you'll be able to pledge an amount to help support the show as well. Once again, thanks for your support. Thank you for listening. Please share it with your friends. Stop by Facebook. Go to JVJ Paranormal. Follow me there. You'll be able to see what uh, shenanigans we're up to here in the studio and other places. Also, YouTube is the place to be. Go there and look for our channel. JV Johnson is the way to find it. Search for it. Subscribe to it. Thank you to everybody who has joined us in the chat room. That's where all the action is going on. Tonight, we're going to be talking about... Well, many things, in fact, uh, as they relate to Ohio. Legends and lore and his hauntings and uh, strange occurrences. Our guest tonight is James Willis. James is an author and a paranormal researcher. He's written many books on the topic. Plus, uh, he's branched out, too. He's not just Ohio-bound. He's also written about Indiana. James, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. Pleasure to have you here tonight. 
Thank you very much. Your pleasure is all mine. How are you? I'm doing terrific. Now, am I right? Were you on, the last time you were on, were you talking about Paul McCartney and the uh, clues that supported the rumor that he had died? Yes, indeed. That That's was right. me. <laughs> yeah, that was, a, that was a lot of fun, by the way. We had a great time with that conversation. As a huge Beatles fan myself, it's one of those things that I've always taken an interest in anyway. And we just had a lot of, we had a good time that night, didn't we? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the fun part about it. I mean, whenever you tell somebody, yeah, there are theories that Paul McCartney was killed in a car crash and replaced by a double, people think you're kind of crazy, and I might be. But, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> like you said, it's always fun to kind of unpack that weird little suitcase and just have fun with it, listening for the little clues embedded in the uh, the different songs. But tonight we're going to talk about something very, very different from that. We are going to be talking about hauntings, strange phenomena throughout Ohio. Plus, we'll get into some other things. I want your opinion on some other uh, things that have happened recently and um, maybe get some idea on some theories and stuff like that. But this is a whole different side to your work. Yeah, this is probably my meat and potatoes. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I've been called Weird Willis for many years, but first and foremost, it was ghosts and hauntings that sort of sent me down that weird little path. So yeah, this is uh, my bread and butter, as it were. And when you say bread and butter, obviously some point uh, in your life, you decided that this was of interest to you. When did the, when did you get turned on to all of this? Wow, that's, that's a great question. Um, I was sort of weird from the very beginning. Um, I was born and raised in um, upstate New York, the Hudson Valley, Hudson Highlands area. So at a very early age, I was subjected to uh, the stories of like Rip Van Winkle and obviously the legend of Sleepy Hollow. And um, the setting for Sleepy Hollow was actually a small little town near where I grew up, and it was called Terrytown. That's right. And my third grade teacher um, decided she was going to have a bit of fun with us for our field trip up to Terrytown in the fall. You know, you got to go up there and make apple butter and applesauce and everything's made of apples. And then you got to have the re- hear the retelling of the legend of Sleepy Hollow. And she decided she was going to try to convince the class that the legend of Sleepy Hollow was a true story. And what she did is when we went up there, um, she took us out to the different places that are in the story. So she took us to the bridge and the old churchyard, and then she took us out into the cemetery and showed us the graves of some of the characters, which are actually there. Um, but the twist on that is Washington Irving, when he decided to make Terrytown the setting for The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, he, um, how shall I say, um, borrowed some of the names from the people that were actually buried in the cemetery. So um, I found out at a very early age that my third grade teacher was lying to us. But um, (laughs) what it did is it made me sort of look at things differently and say, okay, well, that's not a real ghost story. That's not true. What are the true ghost stories? And that sort of set me down the path to try to look at everything from folklore and urban legends and then the quote-unquote real ghost stories and try to figure out if any of them were indeed real. So um, I was probably nine or ten years old when I started doing that and I've been chasing after it ever since. And then along the way, um, the Hudson Valley area of upstate New York is just known for everything from Bigfoot sightings. There was a huge uh, UFO flap in the 80s that um, J. Allen Hynek 
um, of Blue Book yeah. fame. Um, he wrote a book on all of the sightings there called Night Siege. So it just became this sort of paranormal soup up there that I was living in, and I, I would I gladly drank that soup on a nightly basis. But um, but that was to answer your question. It was um, finding out that the legend of Sleepy Hollow and the Headless Horseman wasn't a real story, and trying to figure out where the real ghost stories were. You know, there's something unique about uh, not just upstate New York, but anywhere that's got uh, a heavy, heavily influenced winter climate. And um, I don't know if it's because it gets dark so early for much part, much of the year. And so therefore we're in darkness 18 hours uh, a day, like right now, because I'm in, I'm in Cooperstown, New York. I'm in upstate as well. Uh-huh. Oh, there you go. Uh, or, or if it's cold, we're shut in. Um, we've talked about Christmas stories that are somewhat bizarre, like Krampus and these other very, very, uh, what would be considered scary stories, including ghost stories that are often told about Christmas. And one of my questions is, you know, why would we tell these stories at Christmas? And the answer always is, well, winter, we're headed into winter. Uh, it's a it's a very difficult time of year for for particularly people of the past, and uh, all things around you basically die and don't come back to life until spring. So it lends itself. Are those same factors influences and in why um, we seem to have so much paranormal? Uh, I'm not going to say activity because it wouldn't be responsible for the activity itself, but certainly the stories that go with the activity and the legends like, um, you know, Rip Van Winkle and uh, folklore like Rip Van Winkle. Is it is it the same? Are the same factors at play here? I would I would have to say yes. I, I would have to agree with that because I think on top of all of those points that you just made, there is the idea that, as and I think you might have mentioned it, we are inside. You know, up in in New York, we get some snow up there, so it's you are sort of forced inside, and you know, there's nothing cooler and more and spookier, if you will, than you're you know the middle of the night and you're kind of all huddled around the fire for warmth. You know, and you start hearing that wind howling outside, which in and of itself gives that that air of is that just the wind? Is there something else? And um, so I think all of that lends itself to telling a great ghost story you know it's 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 winter is kind of spooky in and of itself you know you've got the idea as you said that things around there are dying you know and some things are not coming back so it's the idea that you are sort of almost trapped if you will in many things because you stay inside for so long that it lends itself to supernatural occurrences the other thing we've got a lot of up here, despite the fact that um, we have quite a, a history of development and population, we still have a lot of rural area with a lot of forest. And I imagine anytime anybody looks into a dark forest, stories are going to start. Oh, sure. Yeah. And I mean, it, it lends itself to even um, the author Ambrose Bierce wrote stories about, you know, seeing footprints, human footprints in the snow. He wrote a story about a, a child that just disappeared, had gone out to the well um, to fetch water, and they heard the boy yell, and they went out there, and they followed his footprints, and they just stopped. And the, the, the bucket was laying there, but they never saw the boy again. Now, he had made that story up, but it lent itself to a lot of retellings with this idea that somebody just disappeared, you know, in thin air. But I will always remember reading that story as a kid, and I could visually see the idea of those footprints, human footprints, wow. in the snow just stopping in the middle of nowhere. And, of course, then, 
that it's very easy to make the jump from human footprints in the snow to coming across Bigfoot or Yeti or even these strange footprints that you can't identify in the snow. So I think the snow creates that added element, if you will. So we have to go to break here in just about a minute, but you said that as you were growing up in upstate New York, you know, you just took an interest to in these things. TV play a part of that at all? Um, it did, but not the way, um, I mean, this is going back to, you know, that was in the 1970s when I was doing it. So the, the, the shows that I was actually looking at back then were uh, things like In Search Of and uh, Kolchak, The Night Stalker. Mm-hmm. I loved him because he just sort of bumbled into his cases. <laughs> um, so I, I, those were the shows later on, um, you know, Unsolved Mysteries and things like that. Um, started to play a role, but actually it was more of uh, the writing of like Hans Holzer um, back in the day that were kind of the things that I was referring to. So you took an interest in this, you started following it, you had a curiosity. It's a story that a lot of people share, uh, but not a lot of people write about it. At what point did you um, become an author and decide you were going to share some of this stuff with everybody? It actually happened a lot later on. Um, I probably joined my first uh, official ghost group back in 1985, and I was still um, in upstate New York at the time. Um, years later, I moved to uh, Georgia uh, to go to college. And then in 1999, I moved to Ohio, and that's when I, uh, I started my organization, The Ghosts of Ohio. Um, I was actually writing for the website at that point in time, and I had always been doing writing and just sort of writing for different magazines and just getting it out there because my whole belief is when it comes to really anything in the paranormal, but specifically ghosts, I'm willing to admit I don't have all the answers. And so I think that in order for us to find those answers, we need to share information. So I was willingly writing articles and putting them all over the place. And then in, I think it was probably about 2003, um, Mark Moran, who was part of uh, Weird New Jersey, had contacted me, and he had seen some of my writing. And he had a group and a, a magazine, Weird New Jersey, that they had just put out a book appropriately called Weird New Jersey. And they it was popular. They wanted to put out a book called Weird U.S., and they wanted to cover stories from all 50 states. And they had seen my writing for uh, various places that I had written about and wanted to know if I would contribute some stories to uh, Weird U.S. I did, um, and then that led to my writing uh, Weird Ohio, Weird Indiana, and several other books in the Weird U.S. series. And then after that, um, I always feel like I'm dodging the question when people are like, well, how, how do you actually get a book published? And I, I honestly couldn't tell you because people started coming to me and asking me to write a book for them. So different publishers started contacting me, um, and it took off from there. But um, to answer your question, I've been writing for years about the paranormal, but it wasn't until... Um, Mark Moran had approached me in 2003 that I actually started getting published. As you, yeah, as you started to write about this in a published form, did you have to take a different approach at all? Um, did you have to, like, uh, you know, kind of, uh, I don't know, I'm going to use a phrase that I'm not comfortable using, but I can't think of a better way to say it. Did you have to dumb down the paranormal parts of it at all, or did you just tell the stories like they were? That's a great question, and it really varied on the book that I was writing. So, for example, with uh, Weird Ohio, or the books that were actually written for the Weird U.S. series, 
they were less um, focused on um, authenticating a haunt, if you will. So they were they were looking more for retellings of popular legends. And so it was more about they wanted people to flip through the book and go, wow, I remember that story when I was a kid, or wow, I've been there, and I've seen that place, or I know that story. So those were told in a more conversational, but a less in-depth sort of you know, storytelling, if you will. It was just sort of a retelling of the popular legends. Now, when I wrote uh, my book, Ohio's Historic Haunts, I wrote that with um, Kent State University, and they were actually looking for a book that really dug into the, if you want to call it science, the pseudoscience, if you will, of a paranormal investigation and how one goes about trying to collect empirical data that could be um, paranormal in nature, if you will. And so for that, uh, there was no dumbing down. If anything, there was a sort of lifting up, albeit we did have to, I did have to go in and sort of explain some of the equipment and why we use it. So, um, it really varied as to from book to book as to how much um, we had to not necessarily dumb it down, but sort of leave out that sort of uh, the hard science, I guess you could say. And you said you don't have all the answers when it comes to ghosts. I thought our producer said you had all the answers. I, I <laughs> of course, <laughs> of course, I'm kidding. If we had, the... I, you know, I wish I did. It would make my job a lot easier. And and in all honesty, when I openly admit that I don't have all the answers. It sort of rubs some people in the paranormal community the wrong way, you know, and that's why I always say I don't have all the answers. But I personally think that if anybody had all the answers, there couldn't be anybody that doubted this stuff was real. And since there are people that doubt, you know, including me, I have to be skeptical about things. Sure, yeah. Then I think we don't have all the answers. And for me, that's the fun part, because if we don't have all the answers, that means we should do things a little differently or try something differently to find those answers. So it's, for me, it's the thrill of the chase that I like, you know, and, and it also makes it easier when people say, what is that? How did that happen? I go, I don't know. That's interesting, but I don't know. But I, it, it takes a lot of the pressure off of me because it's just me being open and honest about it. I think if we had all the answers, I don't, this program probably wouldn't exist either, um, you know, because this program is in, in a way uh, an attempt to find some answers. So as long as we're, there's a search, we're going to continue to broadcast here. Um, so you've written about ghosts. You've written about other strange phenomena. Do you have a preference? You know, again, that's a great question. No, I think that it all is, if it's paranormal or it's just plain weird, I'm all for it. And um, I think having grown up in New York in an area that had all this weird stuff tied together, it seems destiny that I ended up in Ohio that most people will tell you, I don't think there's really anything there. Ohio's a weird, weird state, and they're proud to be weird. So for me, while I still love a great ghost story and I love just digging into the research, when I kind of end up banging my head against the wall because I have strange stuff happening that I can't explain and I don't know where to go there, then I'm like, oh, wait, hey, there was a UFO sighting just the other day. So I can kind of jump over to that for a little bit. So it, it, it helps me keep things fresh. I mean, I would say my preference is still ghosts. But there's just so much weirdness going on in Ohio that it, it helps me sort of not get burnt out on the paranormal. 
We have uh, to go to break here in just a couple minutes, but I want to get an idea of your opinion on the historical part of all of these things. How much does history or an, an a historical account play, how much of a role does it play in making this stuff either A, worth exploring and researching, or B, um, real or more meaningful? For me, personally, historical documentation is it's essential because for me, I'm trying to find out the reason why things are happening. And the way that I look at it, if someone were to walk into a house and believe they saw a a ghost of a woman at the top of the stairs, okay, well, that's kind of spooky. But if you then can go into the historical documentation and find out that there was a woman who looked exactly like that ghost did, who actually, I'm making this up, but passed away at the top of that stairs on that very night that that person saw that, then I think you are building up that story into not being just a personal experience, but something that is almost validating that personal experience. So I think historical documentation is is essential if you're looking to actually prove or disprove you know, a haunting or a paranormal experience. Our guest tonight, James Willis, author and paranormal researcher. We're talking about his work that led to books such as Central Ohio Legends and Lore, Ohio, Ohio's Historic Haunts. Um, also haunted Indiana, uh, crossing some uh, borders there, James. Um, Ohio's not uh, your exclusive stomping ground, apparently. No, have weirdness, will travel. So it's... Uh... We live in a weird country, so if it spills out, I'm willing to travel wherever it is and track it down. I want to go back to this idea of history playing an important part, particularly when we are researching and discussing paranormal occurrences. Uh, It's easy to understand that maybe when we're talking about a ghost or a haunting-type paranormal uh, phenomena. But what about something like, um, you know, a cryptid, a Bigfoot sighting, or maybe even aliens um, sh- reported in a certain area? Does the history of the location, whether it's a forest or it's a village, have anything to do with making that story more uh, relatable? I think it could. I think you kind of have to take it on a case-by-case basis. But but certainly if, you know, there are people that believe that certain cryptids, I mean, Bigfoot normally falls into that category, that he might be everything from interdimensional to, you know, that he comes from all different areas, that he migrates through there. So you kind of have to look at the area and take all that into consideration. There's also when you start to go look back at a place, um, certainly it works with hauntings, but also with cryptids, anything really. If you start to go back and you don't just look at the history of any particular building that's on the property. So also in the case of if it was just out in the woods, well, was that a sacred place to the Native Americans? You know, was there something else there? Because then you might be able to pick up on that. And if that was a sacred place, okay, are there any records or anything about them sighting these strange creatures? You know, you get a lot of uh, Bigfoot-type sightings, not just in Ohio, but across the United States, where you start looking and you find out that, you know what, Native Americans actually had a name for him. Are they, there are records that other cultures were encountering these sort of creatures way before they kind of made their way into the popular culture. So, yeah, I, I think you have to trace back not just through the simple, okay, well, when was this house built? But you've got to look at the property, and as well as if it's just open, like you said, if it's forest. Um 
you know, there's the up in Connecticut, you know, got the whole idea of Dudley Town, you know, this town that was supposedly cursed and it's out in the middle of nowhere. You know, how much of that is actually true? You know, it, it, you need to kind of dig into the records to figure that out. Let's uh, look at the other side of that coin. History can affect a story in a more um, embellishment of angle as well. How many times do you look into the actual history of an event and find out that uh, the actual event was basically just a seed for the story and the story grew into something far bigger and more dramatic than the actual history of it? Uh, quite often, and that that seems to almost be a trend that's kind of now I think with um, sort of you know, the, the internet right now, it sort of, it makes it easier for these false, false stories to sort of spread and then become, become almost its own part of this separate, like mythos, if you will, that, um, because it becomes very easy for people to just associate, say, okay, well, that was a ghost and this was the person's name. You know, you can have people that, um, even believe they hear something on an EVP, they hear a name and suddenly, the reports of people saying, again, I'm just using this as an example, but somebody reported seeing the ghost of a little boy in this building, and then somebody thinks they hear the name, I don't know, Timmy, on an on EVP. Suddenly, that becomes the boy's name. And then you have somebody saying, well, you know, I get the impression that um, he was killed in a fire. And suddenly you've got the building is haunted by a little boy named Timmy who was killed in a fire, when really you could probably go back to the historical records and figure out that that didn't really happen rather quickly or verify it. But in this case, find out that a lot of the things that are being spread are just not true. So I've noticed that um, a little bit over the years, but it seems to be picking up steam now with more and more people coming into the field. Um, that it's a lot easier for these. It's a lot easier for a ghost story to quickly become an urban legend now than it used to be. Do you think there's a little bit of looking the other wayness, if that's even a phrase, uh, for some of these people? Because it's just more uh, rewarding or maybe even more fun to have that backstory that you might not have otherwise, even though um, you know many serious researchers would question the authenticity of getting information that way. I would totally agree with that. It's, um, I think that the, the paranormal community as a whole, I think, is now sort of um, where it used to be you had the people that just went out just to almost as if it were a, a Halloween sort of haunted house that just wanted to go out and almost have a good scare. You know, they were less concerned about the backstory or the history. It was like, let's go out. And, you know, it was basically legend tripping at one point, it was just, we really don't care about anything. We just hope something scary happens. But now it seems that the, the second group, which was more about really trying to find the history and really trying to figure out what was going on, not necessarily even getting results per se, but just really trying to pull apart that story and try to determine what was real and what was, was fiction, if you will. I think those lines have gotten blurred where now you sort of got this amalgam where people are just going in and it, it never used to, I, I always sound old when I say this, but, but back in my day, <laughs> but when I, when I first got into this field, it was less about finding evidence of a ghost, especially if you were going into other people's homes or their businesses, but it was trying to find answers. Even if that answer was, uh, you don't have a ghost here. It's actually, 
you know, I don't know, you've got leaky, leaky pipes, so you've got a mouse or something like that, but there was a rational explanation. Now it seems that a lot of people in this field are just looking to validate, and they're not taking the time to go in and say, look, we got this, we really don't know what it is, but look at all this documentation that we have that actually goes along that sort of validates this story. It just seems to be more uh, thrill-seeking is what seems to be taking over a larger portion, which I'm totally fine with because I would love to go into these places where all this crazy activity is is happening. I just don't think that it, it happens as much as some people might let on. But again, going back to your point, I think it's, it's more exciting that way, you know, um, especially if you get into these sort of uh, pay-to-play sort of locations where people are paying a lot of money to go into these, quote-unquote, haunted buildings. You don't want to go into there and drop, you know, over $100 and walk away with nothing. And so every sort of creaky noise suddenly becomes a ghost. And I, and I totally get that. I just come at it from the other Side of it, if you will. Do you take those same observations and principles saying that, you know, a lot of new people into the field and those people um, want to walk away with an experience, therefore, you know, they'll grab onto anything they can grab onto. Do you apply that same prism to what's happening on reality television as it relates to the paranormal? Yes, I, I think so. I think that um, what ghost reality shows specifically, I think what they did and what I think you know, Jason did with Ghost Hunters, which was amazing, is that they were sort of at the forefront, and they sort of opened people's eyes to what was actually that, wow, there's really people that, that do this. And I think that was a wonderful thing, because it sort of brought people in to kind of take a look at, wow, there, there are people that actually look for ghosts, and I've had an interest in that. But I think over the years... Uh, specifically when people started looking at the success of, of Ghost Hunters, they needed to create another show to compete with that that was going to kind of pull some of that audience away. And it seems to me that what they did is they upped the ante. All of a sudden, and I've, I've never been afraid of ghosts before, but suddenly now you look at today. They have, you know, I don't know, when ghosts attack you when you're all alone in the shower and, you know, when ghosts <laughs> bite you on the ankle and they're, you're like, really? You know, and, and I, I think that I get where they're coming from because they need to make it entertaining, you know, and they need to sort of distance themselves from the other shows out there. Um, because I've always told people when they're like, well, how come you're not, you don't have a ghost show? And I'm like, because what I do is boring. You know, we've gotten so far away from, you know, we need to, I love what I do, but it doesn't really make for a good show. Right. You know, right. me sitting in the dark going, was that you? Could you do that again? You know, it doesn't really fly. So I think that's sort of a bit of a curse that these reality shows have now taken on a world of their own. I mean, there's entire channels that I think are 24-hour yeah. ghost programming where it's, you know, and again, I think going back to what we were talking about earlier, I th I've noticed that in some of these shows, the history is now mutated. I mean, there's been mm -hmm. a couple of places where they've gone in to places I've investigated numerous times in Ohio where I'm like, that's not true what you just said, you know, and there, so it's, 
it, those shows are a bit of a blessing and a curse, I believe. And we haven't even touched on the idea of exorcisms, which seems to be another trend, or at least it was for a while in this paranormal reality television universe. Um, we are talking about ghosts. We are talking about strange occurrences. James Willis is our guest tonight. And uh, James, as we, we pick up this conversation again, you've done a lot of work um, for many, many years. You predate your work predates, you know, what the television shows have uh, done to the industry, which is really transform it um, significantly, maybe even a, a revolution instead of an evolution. How have you changed the way you research and operate since the uh, introduction of some of these shows? Anything affect you? Oh, most definitely. I mean, I will always still keep uh, ears and eyes on the uh, the television to see what is sort of the new uh, gadgets that they're using on the show, some of which I still can't really figure out what it is that they're saying that it does. But, you know, I do use those there and try to incorporate them. Um, I'll also buy one or two and then break them apart and actually see if they're what they are actually doing to see if it could be something that incorporates. But, um, yeah, I think back to what we were talking about earlier, where I say that I, I don't have all the answers. I'm continually trying to involve, uh, evolve how I conduct an investigation. I think probably um, the biggest part to audio, because I've, I've always been intrigued with the idea of like ghost voices. And again, I'm dating myself when I say this, but the very first recorder that I used was a reel to reel. <laughs> and um, <laughs> along too. the way, I've kind of gone and done everything from, you know, the micro cassette recorders to the full cassette decks to digital recorders. Um, but we've started doing uh, experiments, if you will, where currently the, the big microphones that, we use on investigations are, are studio microphones that we actually hardwire into a uh, mixing board. Um, but what we will do on investigations is we'll kind of do an experiment and we will lay all of those different recording devices out in one specific area to see if it, it sounds weird. I call these my two bottle conversations because you need two bottles of really good wine to kind of unpack this, but it's the <laughs> idea that, you know, is there a recording device that is better at picking up an EVP than others? And kind of what you touched upon, that there's this revolution, there's been sort of this explosion of people using all different sorts of devices, including now it's very easy for people to do ghost investigations because they have basically their own audio recording device, video and photography. They've got it all on their phone. But I look at at it and say, well, have we missed something along the way? Have we gotten too much into the technology? And has the technology driven what we're using simply because it's more convenient? So we will unpack all of these on investigations. We will use everything from the thermal cameras to infrared cameras. We go all the way back to the the 20-pound VHS <laughs> camcorder that I had back in the 80s. And we will use that as well to see, again, is there something that is easier to pick up paranormal activity? Because if you go back and you look at, uh, in the case of EVPs, the very first one, when you're looking at Rowdive and all those people that sort of began the thing of EVPs, they were using very archaic devices. 
and yet they were getting results. So, um, yeah, I kind of go all the way to the most modern stuff to go all the way back to the very primitive pieces of equipment to see what's going to work. And we've gotten very interesting results with all different devices. So, again, that's sort of what keeps me going. It's that intrigue is how are these things happening? Well, let me ask this then, because, you know, there has been not just a transformation in the way we conduct these investigations, but as you pointed out, there's been a real transformation in the type of equipment used. And obviously, digital technology has changed everything, regardless of whether it's video, still photography, or audio, or even other um, forms of evidence. But my question is this. When we started doing EVP work, and not me personally, but when the industry started doing EVP work and was using analog tape, and um, when we started doing uh, photography and we're using film, are there any differences in the type of evidence we're collecting from those that we were collecting those days from what we're collecting now? Has the digital process by which we now record things, whether it's images or audio, has that changed what we're collecting at all? I I personally believe that it has. I think if you take a look at, say, audio, back why um, when I first got into the field, so we're talking like in, in the 1980s, the idea behind how voices were ending up on the, the recordings was the idea, now again, two-bottle conversation, but the right. idea that ghosts can manipulate the, the, the electromagnetic field, and that those recording devices back then had magnetic, so the M and EMF, had magnetic tape heads. So they, the, the theory was that the ghost was basically manipulating the EMF field or the magnetic tape heads and getting its voice on there. Again, that's pseudoscience to right. the pseudoscientist degree. But at least that was some weird sort of rationale. The idea behind how voices are getting onto digital voice recorders, I'm not sure anybody has actually really explained that, unless, of course, you start looking at the the Frank's boxes and all those different sort of, you know, AMFM sweeps that are being used. The idea they're saying behind that is that the ghost is able to use the white noise or the static to create its voice, if you will. So I think, yes, it has changed. If you take a look at photography, something that, you know, I think we all have to be, we have to willingly admit is that there was no such thing as a ghost orb until digital cameras came around. Uh, if you look back at, there are a, a number of books that go into the history of ghost photography or spirit photography, Way back when we first started getting them, they either looked like people or they were full-formed white figures. There were none of these balls of light. It's because when the digital cameras came out, they were basically, you were getting dust orbs or, or you know pollen particles or things like that. So I think that in that regard, it's changed how we are looking at photography. You know, a lot of times you've got to also look at Back when we were shooting on 35 millimeter, or I was even using Polaroids at one point in time, but with 35 millimeter, the downside to that is you couldn't get that instant result. Right. You know, which you can do with digital cameras now, because I tell people if you're shooting with a digital camera and you get a weird picture, 
keep taking pictures right. because again, if you just take one picture, it's just one weird thing. But if you get a whole series of weird pictures, you're telling a better story that way. So I think that's an example of how the technology could kind of work against us, but yet for us as well. Uh, we're talking about a lot of stories and legends and uh, phenomena that you have researched and you have written about, James. And I want to know, in your estimation, are they stories or are they uh, accounts of paranormal, legitimate paranormal activity? I think it's a mixture. Is that enough of a, a cop-out for you? <laughs> no, that's walking the fine line right there. <laughs> no, I, I, I think that there's... I think that... Um, Mansfield Reformatory here in Ohio, I think, is a great example of what I'm trying to get at, is I've been there 10, 12, a bunch of times over the years. I do believe, honestly, that there is something there. We've we've gone there and gotten everything from disembodied voices to people actually seeing figures moving around, hearing strange noises. So I do believe there is something there. However, if you take a look at if you were to just Google Mansfield's Reformatory and look at the stories, there are a lot of stories that are just not true, that have sort of, back to what we were talking about earlier, somebody has had an experience that they start adding to, and suddenly you are basically have created this entire story, that there is no shred of evidence to support that that happened, all the way down to it was a guard and this was his name. So I think a lot of places do have that sort of kernel of truth. No pun intended. I know you're having some troubles there with the kernel. That was a little bit cruel. That was a little cruel, James. That was a little bit cruel because during the last break, I actually got the dental floss out to try to get it out of there, and it's still not out. It's driving oh, me. No. It's driving me batty as I as I try to have this conversation with you. Um, I think that's probably true about any of the phenomena we're talking about. We tend to lean toward talking about ghosts. However, uh, would you say that what the the, the uh, answer you just gave us would apply to things like Bigfoot sightings and uh, alien or UFO sightings as well? Certainly. And I mean, a a great example of that going back to Ohio would be uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which is right outside of uh, Dayton, Ohio. That is uh, notorious for the infamous Hangar 18, which got its start with uh, the Roswell crash, where it wasn't even Wright-Patterson. It was uh, just Wright Field. But the idea behind that was that back in July 47, a UFO allegedly crashed uh, near Roswell, New Mexico, that a the UFO was recovered and was sent to Hangar 18 at then Wright Field, which is now Wright-Pat. That was the original story. There are semi-declassified documents that do show that something, be it a weather balloon or whatever it was, but that something did act, was actually recovered there that made its way through Texas and to Wright Field. So something did go there. Over the years now, that story has now grown to where there were now multiple crafts that crashed there that made their way to Wright-Pat, as well as aliens. Um, all the way, and that particular story, all the way down to um, there were two deceased aliens, 
to there's now a version that has one of them was still alive. But that story is spread to the point where, you know, the band Megadeth is now writing songs about a Hangar 18. So it's it, the, the, the stories behind Right Pat even grew outside to now any famous or infamous crash in the United States that is supposedly a UFO. Um, Kecksburg, Pennsylvania in uh, 1965 is another good example. But any story that involves a crashed UFO allegedly being recovered, it supposedly has made its way to Wright-Patterson, even though there's no documentation to support anything from most of these crashes going there, let alone aliens. This story has just grown over the years to now everything goes to right Pat. Another thing that might be common in your research as you look across, whether it's Ohio or, or in a uh, broader geographic area, do you find that some of the same stories pop up in every community? In other words, and I'm going to be very general here, um, you know, every, every community has their house on the corner that the lady in white shows up in the attic window at midnight on every Friday, you know, that kind of story. And that, you know, is in every community. Are there commonalities between stories and communities? Yes, there's a lot. And one of the, um, I mean, because I think everybody has got a version of a Bloody Mary type story. Um, but again, depending on what state I was covering at the time, some people just have, okay, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary is just, I don't know, somebody named Bloody Mary. They didn't really have a backstory behind it, and sometimes she just appeared on the other side of the mirror. But other stories, particularly in Ohio, which I found fascinating, Bloody Mary didn't have a backstory. She still lived in the mirror, but there were other buildings around Ohio that she supposedly used to live in. So you've kind of got this legend tripping to the extreme where now Bloody Mary is out from behind the mirror, and she's living at these other locations. So people were now going there to find her. Um, another great example is um, Crybaby Bridges, which I, I don't believe every state has one, but I grew up in New York where there was one. And then when I moved to uh, Georgia and told somebody, they said, do you ever been to the Crybaby Bridge? And I was like, sure, yeah, up in New York. And they were like, no, there's one in Georgia. And I'm like, no, that's not true. There's just one, and it's in New York. And I found there were four in Georgia, um, when I moved to Ohio, I actually started, and it's ongoing now, on my website where I am tracking all of the alleged crybaby bridges in Ohio, and I think I'm up to 35. Um, just so in Ohio. Just in Ohio. Just, just in Ohio, sure. Uh-huh. And I mean, it's, and what's fascinating to me is that the basic crybaby bridge story is, I mean, you need a bridge, you have a mom and a newborn baby. And if you're not really good at telling stories, just say, I don't know, they were walking on the bridge. And if you don't have a bridge, find a spooky train trestle or an overpass or something, but have something happen that causes the baby to fall off the bridge or get thrown from the bridge. And if you want to make it super scary, say it happened like at midnight on Halloween night. <laughs> right. And then you, and then you tell people, if you go out there and you do something, flash your lights, honk your horn, yell real loud, whatever, you'll hear the baby crying. That's the basic story. But yet in Ohio, I have come across crybaby hollows where there's no bridge involved, but it's the same type of story. Or you've got, I've got versions where they say that's the crybaby bridge, but it's, it's the cries 
of an unwed mother, and there is no baby involved. So this story has just mutated, and it's gone all over the place. Um, so it's fascinating because, again, yeah, I found common elements, but going back to Ohio, Ohio is just weird where, again, we've got a lot of Bigfoot sightings here, but we're weird in Ohio, so we can't just call it Bigfoot. We have to say we've also got the grass man, which is our own variation, if you will, of Bigfoot. I think it's still just a Bigfoot, but that would offend some cryptozoologists that claim it's a, a different species. But again, same type of creature, Bigfoot. It's just, I don't know, is bigger cousin or something. I don't know. <laughs> and what, what area of Ohio has, is, do you say grass man? Yes, the Ohio Grassman. And what's fascinating to me about it is, again, going back to when I first moved to Ohio and I asked people, what can you tell me about um, Ohio? And the response they told me, it was all the same, so much so that when I wrote Weird Ohio, I put it in the introduction. But when I asked people, what can you tell me about Ohio? What, what's there to do in Ohio? And they would look at me and go, uh, I don't know. I, I think a lot of people drive through Ohio. So it, it was like I thought I was going into nothingness, up here. but it's it's just a really neat place that you wouldn't think there would be Bigfoot sightings in Ohio because most people, when they think of Ohio, think it's flat, there's nothing here, and it's a lot of cornfields. But southern Ohio is an area that is notorious for having a lot of them. So you're down kind of in an area, Cambridge. There's a place, Salt Fork State Park, which is huge. It's uh, it's well over 17,000 acres that there have been so many sightings down there that they actually have areas of it. Part of it is a state park, but part of the state park has areas with state park signs that they have like Sasquatch Ridge because there's been so many reported sightings there that that's where people will actually go to to actually have their own encounters. And again, you wouldn't think there would be that many sightings in a state like Ohio. But once you get out into that Salt Fork area, you're like, no, I can totally see. If Bigfoot was going to hang out in Ohio, this is where he'd hang out. Is Ohio prone to this type of activity more so than any other area in the country? Or is there something unique going on there? I mean, you know, sometimes we talk about certain geological formations or water, uh, bodies of water or rivers uh, that tend to fuel activity. Is there anything special happening that you see? I I do. And I, I can't say that it's more than any other, say, area or state. But Ohio does have more than its fair share of weirdness. And I think, just like what you touched upon, if you look at Ohio on a map, it's landlocked east to west, and then it's covered with water in the north and the south. So you've got Lake Erie up top there. You've got the Ohio River. You've got plains all through the middle of it. There are also a lot of not only Native American sites, so you've got a lot of not only burial mounds, but you have got formations uh, were probably most famous for in Adams County, Ohio. It's called the Serpent Mound, which if you've never seen it or your listeners have not seen it, just Google Serpent Mound, Ohio, and it is this giant, basically, it looks like just raised earth from the ground. But when you look up, and they have an observation tower there, but if you get way up into the heavens, if you will, it is a giant, gigantic snake 
that looks to be devouring. Some people say it's an egg. Other people say it's a planet. But there is no way that you could see this and determine what it is from the ground. We have numerous structures like that. We even have these structures that were built by cultures that go so far back, they have no idea what this culture was that made it. They refer to it as the Adena culture, but they have no idea really who these people were, what they did uh, kind of like on a, a day-to-day basis. It's, it's just fascinating that you've got, I mean, they're talking that this is like a culture that existed from like, I think it's like 1000 to 200 BC. I mean, it goes way back and we've got all of these sort of cultural areas like they, they believe we use for ceremonial, but they don't really know. I think that certainly ties into the the weirdness of Ohio. And then when you add in Wright Pat being like the hub of all of the UFO stuff, it makes for a very weird state. As you were learning more about the stories that you were going to include in your books and retell and investigate and research, did anything come up that actually surprised you or maybe even gave you a little bit of a pause as to whether you wanted to open up uh, that can of worms maybe? I don't know if it ever gave me pause to not want to go further, because to me, I find that to be intriguing. And as long as I never felt that I was sort of um, at risk, if you will, uh, or in any danger, I'm, I'm willing to, to go down that dark road um, to dig into it, to see what it is. Because again, for me, I, I find that the fascinating aspect, that if you can actually collect and connect these sort of historical puzzle pieces, I'm all for that. And, and as I said, unless I really felt that I was, or to flip it, if I was doing something that I think would be disrespectful to those that came before me, um, then no, I, I'm willing to unpack and open all those boxes. And how about anything that ultimately put a shiver down your spine? There are certain stories, and I've done a lot of this, most of them don't affect me in that way. It's more of a curiosity than anything else at this point. But there are a few that I come across once in a while that uh, actually do either make the hair on the back of my neck stand up or send a shiver down my spine. You come across any of those? Oh, most certainly. I mean, I, I, one of the, the newer ones that I'm still scratching my head over, I can't figure out how this actually happened, but we were doing a a private investigation of a, it was a, like a commercial type building. And whenever we use audio and video, we always try to triangulate everything so that we've got three points of reference. And this one particular room had two studio microphones and a video camera in it. And at one point during the investigation, you clearly hear me not walking up to the microphone, but I'm roughly about six inches away from the studio microphone. And I whisper, but I say, no, what's it set on? And what we do after investigations is we sort of divide up all of the audio and the video. And we traditionally don't let the investigators that were on that part of the investigation listen to the audio or the video or watch the video because we're trying to get sort of new sets of uh, eyes and ears on it. But I did listen to that, and when I heard it, I sheepishly was like, that's me, and I was sort of embarrassed because I I try to – there's a rule within our group is that we don't ever whisper on investigations because you don't use your vocal cords, and it's hard to determine. But I clearly heard me say, no, what's it set on? So I I just marked it off as not being anything, 
And three other people had that audio as well. Two of the other ones marked it off as being me. Once a month, we, we get back together, and any sort of evidence or unexplained things that we think we have, we present it to the group, and then we all sort of fight to figure out what it is. Well, the one person presented that as being evidence, and I said, no, that's me. And the other people were like, no, that's, that's our fearless leader, and he's whispering, and he's not supposed to be. And Mark, the person who had actually marked it as evidence, he said, but look at the video. On the video, I'm not in that room. Oh, wow. At the, ex- at the exact moment when you hear me say, no, what's it set on, I'm actually probably 150 feet away on the other side of the building behind closed doors. And you can see me on the other camera. I'm not talking. Yet when we looked back and we did a voice pattern of that, it's kind of my voice, but it's not me. But you can see, and you and the other weird thing, which again, two bottle conversation, you clearly on the one microphone hear what sounds like me say, "No, what's it set on?" The other microphone didn't pick up anything. The video camera, which shows that there's nobody there in front of, in that room at all, didn't pick that up either. So I have no idea how what sounds like me whispering <laughs> ended wow. up on a studio microphone when I'm basically on the other side of the building it's creepy enough to get a disembodied voice it's very creepy to get a disembodied voice that sounds like it's imitating you (laughs) yes because we started saying is this some sort of weird like audio doppelganger or something like that but those were the things that the the investigator is very intrigued by something like that because i can't find an explanation for that the human being side of me though is like that's starting to get a little close to home because I'm like, of all the people you could imitate, why are you picking, a, you know, like a schmuck like me? There's other people you could be pretending to be. So it's, it is weird, though. It's something that really kind of gives me pause. Let's talk about your maybe top five list of uh, what you would consider to be the most active locations, whether they're hauntings or cryptid sightings, whatever it happens to be, that you've uh, researched and included in any of your books. Can you give me a top five list? Sure. I I think Mansfield Reformatory certainly would rank up there. There is also um, another building, which is also in Mansfield, uh, the Bitsman Building, um, which we have. That was a fascinating story in terms of the history because it was an old sort of grocery and manufacturing building. Um, When I wrote about that for Ohio's Historic Haunts, the building was currently owned by a fifth-generation Bisman. So I was able to not only get the complete history of the building, but also get sort of the origin of the ghost stories that and where they had actually started throughout the building. That was just an eerie place that we got... um, what sounded like a little girl talking when obviously we did not have a a little girl in the building at the time. Um, The whole area of Marietta, Ohio, which is getting down towards the south, you're getting right along the river, is a fascinating place. A lot of really good history there. They've got a wonderfully spooky, um, extravagant hotel, but very a lot of activity reported. There's a Lafayette Hotel. Um, There's also the Anchorage, which is an older hotel. building, sort of a state that they now have tours that you can take through there. Um, Athens, Ohio, always pops up. Again, it's, in, it's down in the south there. That has 
if you kind of Google Athens, Ohio, you get everything from um, the building is now called the Ridges. It used to be the old um, mental asylum. A lot of odd stories around there. You can actually go into parts of the building. It's now owned by Ohio University. There's the old uh, patient cemetery back behind there. Um, it's it's basically the uh, asylum was from the days where basically you went up there and you were not coming home. Right. But they tried to make it a self-sufficient facility. So there were farms there. There were, uh, you know, there's a theater there. So you can actually go and sort of tour the grounds there. It's very close to um, Ohio University, which is infamous for uh, Wilson Hall, which supposedly there was a door uh, that um, a student had actually committed suicide in the one dorm room, and they had boarded it up. But uh, the face of it changes. It used to be a handprint, then it became the face of the devil, um, would appear in the wood grain, and they couldn't get rid of it, so that's there. But probably the most amazing story about Athens, which is it's just a, it's a weird place to go down to. It, it kind of makes me feel like I'm back in my hometown, um, is there is a legend that claims that if you line up the five biggest cemeteries in Athens proper on a map, and you draw lines between them, that the lines would be the same exact length, and it would form a perfect pentagram over it. Huh. Um, not true. Um, <laughs> but it's also, at, at, um, Athens, Ohio is also, it's an old farming um, community. So there are, I think at last count, I had like 630 Cemeteries, most of them were small family plots there, but you could certainly, if you wanted to make like, I don't know, the Athens rhombus or something, if you wanted to make any sort of shapes over that. Um, you're also not that far if you just hop over, um, you go down and go over into um, Kentucky. You're not that far from um, Bobby Mackey's, which is in Wilder, Kentucky, which is sort of infamous. Um if you wanted to go even further down into uh, Louisville, Kentucky, Waverly Hills is probably in my top five, too. Um, I, I've been there numerous times and had all sorts of strange things happen there. That's another interesting case, though, because what we were talking about earlier is that there are all sorts of stories associated with Room 502 and all of the bad things that happen there. I can honestly tell you that 99% of the stories people will tell you about what happened in 502, there's no truth to any of them. But uh, the building as a whole is an old TB hospital, sits all alone up on the top of the hill. It's um, a fascinating place. And then real quick, I mean, I, I love to go to uh, Loveland, Ohio, because they've got, again, we've got our cryptid just like everybody else, but Ohio's got to have its own. Um, that's home to the Loveland Frog, which is supposedly <laughs> this half man, half frog creature that they've been seeing since the uh, the early seventies, and it's very close to the the Loveland Castle, which is an allegedly haunted castle that was incredibly, and this is true, built by one man by hand using br uh, rocks that he pulled out of the Little Miami River that he spent. 50 years actually building, and it is a multi-story castle sitting on over on a bluff overlooking the Little Miami River. Well, that's impressive. <laughs> yeah, it's it's impressive and really crazy too. I have he uh, he did it. He would basically get up every morning with two empty five-gallon pails, walk about 150 yards down to the river, pull the rocks out, walk back up, and 
it's estimated he did that about 50,000 times before he wow. uh, passed away. Right, we just have a couple minutes left here, but I have to ask you about this, and I do it with a little bit of uh, hesitancy because I just bought myself uh, a Harley Davidson motorcycle. Um, <laughs> and it says that you actually have a, what do you, what do you call it, a weird obsession or an odd obsession? Um, an odd obsession with the overabundance of headless motorcycle ghosts in Ohio. What is that about? I see. I was. I would answer you. Ask you the same thing. Yeah. I. I think for me personally, it's tying back in the whole idea of the headless horseman that started me on my weird journey, and I end up here in Ohio, and I have no idea why, but Ohio seems to have more headless ghost stories, headless motorcycle ghost stories per capita than any other state I've covered, and I don't know why. Um, the two most famous ones, there is one in Elmore. He's known as the Elmore Rider, and it involves basically a man coming back from, they always say, the war. Um, and on March 21st, he is driving his motorcycle back. He's, he's coming home, and he drives down to see his girlfriend and finds her in the arms of another man. He drives off, and he crashes, and he loses his head. And the story is that if you go out to the bridge on the anniversary of the crash, March 21st, and you flash your lights three times that you will actually see his motorcycle light come towards you and then disappear. And uh, Chris Woodard, who wrote the uh, Haunted Ohio series of books, she actually, I can't take credit for this, because she said that she went out there, flashed her lights three times, and then she said, and guess what I saw? A whole bunch of people behind me flashing their lights. You know? so, but I will say very quickly is that Oxford, Ohio, down in southern Ohio, has another motorcycle ghost, a headless one. Same type of story, except he crashes going around a sharp turn. And they say that if you go down there and do the same thing, don't have to go on the 21st just any time, and you flash your lights, and you're facing the way that he would have come driven down, that you will see his headlight. And oddly enough, this is not why I married her, but my wife actually grew up in Oxford, Ohio, and her parents still live there. We've gone up and down that road probably 30 or 40 times, and guess what? We've seen this light. We oh, have wow. seen it. There is never any noise. It's one light. When I give presentations all around the Midwest, and I always bring the video of when I've seen this light, and we filmed it. It, it is the weirdest thing. The other weird thing is that I can find absolutely no historical documentation that any person crashed on that road, not, let alone on a motorcycle. But yet, if you drive up and down that road maybe 10 times, don't have to flash your lights or do anything. And I tell people, you will see this light, wow. and I cannot explain what it is. Interesting. Um, you know, that story you told uh, about the uh the guy on the motorcycle saw his girlfriend in the arms of another guy and go, drives off and, uh, and wrecks. Um, was Leader of the Pack written there in that area? <laughs> the Shangri-La's tune, you know, Leader of the Pack? You know, that that's... I don't know. <laughs> I don't but that, know. that's sounds, interesting. That, I mean, and it's... Yeah, I, I don't know why you're getting up... Elmore is pushing up towards... You're getting towards northern, you know... Cleveland, you're getting yeah. up into that area. So, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, there could yeah, have been sure. 
something that came out of that particular area. I, I don't know. It's a great question, though. Well, it just, it just struck me as a little bit funny. Um, hey, it's been a great discussion, uh, James. I really appreciate your time. Your books are available where? Uh, anywhere books are sold. If you're in Ohio, you can pretty much go into any of the uh, brick-and-mortar bookstores, and they will have them. If not, Amazon or any other online booksellers, you just type in Weird Willis, and you'll find them. And hope you'll come back sometime, too. I would, it would be my pleasure. Just say the word. It's always a great time. That's great. Uh, again, your website is uh, strangeandspookyworld.com. A lot of great information there about your work, too. Yep, yep. You can find it there. Or, again, I'm all over Facebook and all those other social media things that I don't know how to work, but I am out there. So <laughs> you can friend me or like me or do whatever the, the kids do these days. But, yeah, you can find me all over the place. Remember to subscribe to the YouTube channel. That's where the show will be live from this point moving forward. So um, go to YouTube, search for J.V. Johnson, and subscribe. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.